You've got shit. I've got shit. We've all got shit. So let's therapize that shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. Please note, I am not a therapist. I cannot and do not diagnose anyone or prescribe anything. This is just me, someone who struggles with mental illness, emotions, and intrusive thoughts, sharing what skills I've used and how I've used them. Also, trigger warning, in this podcast, I talk about sensitive topics including mental illness, suicidal ideation, self-harm, rape, childhood sexual assault, trauma, and more. I also swear here and there, so listener discretion is advised. Welcome, welcome. Today, we are going to be talking about disgust. Or rather, me, two months ago, into the past, will be talking about disgust. I am recording this intro on December 17th, 2021. And what you are about to hear was recorded on October 28th, 2021. So a little under two months ago. And I don't have a lot of practice in identifying disgust when it's happening. I know how anger feels. I know how fear or anxiety feels. I know how sadness feels. But disgust is not an emotion I've spent a lot of time being aware of when I'm having it, practicing how to regulate when it's happening, doing opposite action or just observing it even. I know that I feel it. I know that there are many times that I feel disgust. And I don't know that if somebody asked me in the middle of feeling disgust that I would be able to say, oh, I'm feeling disgust right now. If somebody said, what emotion are you feeling right now? I would mislabel it as something else. Probably anger, because I think disgust triggers a lot of judgment, and then the judgment will trigger anger, and I will get quagmired in the anger rather than sitting with the disgust, or even being aware of the disgust. So that's what we're going to talk about today, or that's what I talked about two months ago, and you're about to hear it. Now, I talk about this way more at the end, but I want to mention it now. In what you're about to hear, there are skills I use, and there are also places where I am spectacularly ineffective. Namely, you'll notice that when I try to describe the prompting event for the emotion of disgust, I'm super vague, which is a big reason why I'm not able to address the disgust. So if you're listening to this and wondering, what the fuck is she on about this quote-unquote event, what event, that's totally justified. I'm really not being specific. And once we're done with this flashback, I'll get into what the skills gap is in much more detail. So <laughs> let's dive in, shall we? So I've been doing some recordings that are me basically talking about being skillful and accomplishing things and getting shit done. And today I thought I would actually hop on while I am not in a great place. So there would be some some balance. I just literally 30 seconds ago finished an appointment with my therapist. And I think I cried for 
45 minutes of the of the 60 minute session a lot of conversation around frustration with my my folks and their faith and the way that they interact with me around their faith and living in the house with them and hearing them talk about their faith with other people it's uh it's a lot and a lot of um a lot of anger came up and a lot of disgust so i thought we could take a second and actually talk about one of the emotions that i don't do a great job of identifying um and so this is emotion regulation handout six um, in the DBT handbook. You can find a link to the PDF on my website, therapies.joygerhard.com. There's a link in the description. And you can also buy a copy. There's a link for that on the website too. So emotion regulation, um, that's the one of the modules in the DBT handbook. And handout six is super long um, because it's a single handout, but each page is its own emotion. So we've got anger, disgust, envy, fear, happiness, jealousy, love, sadness, shame, guilt. And then at the very, very end, underneath at the end of guilt, there's other important emotion words that don't really fit into those categories. So for each emotion, um, it talks about like so if the emotion is discussed, which is what we're going to talk about right now, there's a bunch of synonyms so you can get the exact flavor of your given emotion. And then it talks about the prompting events for feeling disgust. So these are things that happen that will elicit the experience, the emotion of disgust. And then it, will ta- it talks about the interpretation of events that prompt feelings of disgust. So these are things that happen that they themselves don't trigger disgust. How we think about those things, the interpretations of that event that triggers disgust. So an example of an interpretation rather than the fact, you know, if, if your partner is late coming home from work and someone coming home from late, coming home late may not trigger anger necessarily, but if you have the thought, they don't care about me, or they don't value my time, or their work is more important than I am, or they don't value communication, our relationship is doomed, like those interpretations, those thoughts can elicit all of these emotions. So again, prompting events, then we have interpretation of events, then it'll talk about the biological changes and experiences, so basically what it feels like inside your body. Then it talks about expressions and actions of disgust, like somebody standing in the corner of the room watching you, what they would see. Um, And this also includes urges. And then finally, the echoes and after effects. So kind of how it lingers even after the event is finished. Yeah, let's, let's talk about disgust. So some disgust words. Abhorrence. Antipathy. Aversion. Condescension. Contempt. Dislike. 
derision, disdain, distaste, and these are alphabetical in case you couldn't tell, hate, loathing, repugnance, repelled, repulsion, resentment, revolted, scorn, sickened, spite, and vile. And those are all different parts of speech, and that annoys the crap out of me. So what's interesting here is some of these I had kind of assumed were anger. Like hate feels like an anger word, and it turns out it's a disgust word. And that, I mean, it makes sense, because if if disgust is just extreme dislike, then extreme dislike is hate, you know? Um, So some prompting events for feeling disgust. Seeing or smelling human or animal waste products. Um, Having a person or an animal that is dirty, slimy, or unclean come near you. Tasting something or being forced to swallow something you really don't want. And oh, oh my God, the um, disgust I feel about Robitussin. Robitussin cough syrup. I think I would rather die of a cough than take that shit. It is, I used to have to psych myself up and my mom would give me a stack of saltine crackers to just shovel into my mouth immediately after. And I would like whole body just like, like just repulsion. So I feel that one strongly. Seeing or being near a dead body, touching items worn or owned by a stranger, dead person or disliked person. Observing or hearing about a person who grovels or who strips another person of dignity. Seeing blood or getting blood drawn. Observing or hearing about a person acting with extreme hypocrisy or fawning. Observing or hearing about betrayal, child abuse, racism, or other types of cruelty. Being forced to watch something that deeply violates your own wise mind values. Being confronted with someone who is deeply violating your own wise mind values. Being forced to engage in or watch unwanted sexual contact. And then there's a space for other. And I think, I mean, there's as many different ways to be disgusted as there are people in the world. So those are prompting events for feeling disgust. So this is an event that happens and you don't have any interpretation, any thought about it. This is a thing that happens and this thing itself triggers disgust. I wrote the date on here of when I first did this page in my original DBT group. It was September 21st, 2016, which is over five years ago. And the only thing I circled on there, because clearly this is where I was at the moment, was the word hypocrisy. Observing or hearing about a person acting with extreme hypocrisy or fawning. I have been dealing with that a lot lately, but we'll get into that later. So now The next section is interpretation of events that prompt feelings of disgust. So the event itself is not the thing. It's the thought we had. So here's some beliefs that will trigger feelings of disgust. A belief that you are swallowing something toxic. So you don't actually have to be swallowing something toxic. If somebody tells you or you believe that you are, that can trigger disgust. The belief that your skin or your mind is being contaminated. The belief that your own body or body parts are ugly. So I'm thinking of uh, body dysmorphia there. The belief that others are evil or that they disrespect authority or the group. 
disapproving of or feeling morally superior to someone else. Um, An extreme disapproval of yourself or your own feelings, thoughts, or behaviors. Um, Judging that a person is deeply immoral or has sinned or violated the natural order of things. Judging somebody else's body as extremely ugly. So these are all thoughts that we have that can trigger disgust. I have, I put an asterisk next to the extreme disapproval of yourself or your own feelings, thoughts, or behaviors. Yeah, I think disgust can also, like, disgust based on that can trigger shame. So he starts with disgust. That's the first thing that happens. And then shame follows. And here's what disgust feels like in your body. So these are the biological changes and experiences of disgust. Feelings of nausea, like so feeling sick to your stomach, an urge to vomit, gag, or choke, or actually doing any of those things, having a lump in your throat, an aversion to drinking or eating. Like I've noticed that there are things that when I feel disgust around something I'm watching, I don't want to eat during that. Um, An intense urge to destroy or get rid of something. For me, this oftentimes feels like I want to claw out of my clothes or crawl out of my own skin. I like I just need to get out. Um, the urge to take a shower, the urge to run away or push away. Feeling contaminated, dirty or unclean, feeling mentally polluted, fainting. So those are all kind of body sensations that can happen when you experience disgust. Expressions and actions of disgust. So these are urges. Basically what it looks like if somebody is in the room watching you when you're experiencing disgust. They may see you vomit or spit something out, close your eyes and look away, wash, scrub or take a bath, change your clothes or cleaning your space, avoiding eating or drinking, pushing or kicking something away, running away, treating somebody or something with disdain or disrespect, stepping over or crowding another person out, physically attacking the cause of your, dis- of your disgust, using obscenities or cursing, clenching your hands or fists, frowning or not smiling, being mean or unpleasant, I'm sorry, having a mean or unpleasant facial expression, speaking with a sarcastic tone of voice, the nose and top lip tightening up, or smirking. So those are some ways, if you're looking at someone, you might be able to tell that they're experiencing disgust. Or if you're experiencing disgust, that's, those are some things that other people might see you do. And the echoes or after effects of disgust include narrowing of attention, ruminating about the situation that's making you feel disgusted, becoming hypersensitive to dirt, I think narrowing of attention is actually, I'm flipping through handout six and looking at every single one of them. Um, Almost all of them have narrowing of attention as an after effect because one of the things about experiencing strong emotions is that it narrows our attention. So feelings of disgust, what I'm noticing and the, the thing that's prompting this is a disconnect between what my parents say and what they do. Things that they say are important, and then behaving in a different way. A lack of self-awareness around that. 
saying something to me and saying something different to other people on the phone. And this is this is a conundrum for me because like I don't want to eavesdrop and my parents are both losing their hearing, so they are extremely loud when they're on the phone or on Zoom or whatever. And our doors are hollow core doors, which means that they're basically glorified cardboard. So talking to my therapist today about how to basically tolerate the distress that comes up, which is not to say that I like the behavior. I don't think there's anything I can do that's going to change their behavior, Um, which merely means I need to address how I feel or tolerate the, the distress that comes from it. So I should probably get into the um, kind of the biological model of how emotions work. What's in the DBT handbook is it's shit. It's emotion regulation handout five. It's very confusing. I will put up a, a diagram that I actually like way better. That's the emotion wheel. Basically it's, it, it's, it is a handout five, but just drawn differently in a way that I think is a little bit more intuitive. So imagine your emotions, the experience of having emotion like a wheel. And if you don't have any emotions in a given moment, your wheel is just sitting there. And then you push it and it'll start spinning. And there are things that can happen that can slow down the spinning and things that can perpetuate the spinning. So there are two things that will get the wheel spinning. One is an event. So what you thought, what you saw, what you heard, what you felt, what you tasted, smelled, dreamed, remembered, any of those things can elicit an emotion. And the other thing that can elicit an emotion is the story or the interpretation we have about an event. So again, like that, you know, your partner coming home late. That thing, you know, the the thought that you have, oh, they don't care about me, they don't love me, they value their their job more than they value me. They're just like my parent who always came home late. Oh my God, my parents got divorced. I never felt love. Like there's those are all kind of thoughts that can have that experience blow up. And so your wheel starts spinning faster and faster. Oftentimes the interpretation happens so quickly behind the event that we lump them together. Um, I once had a meltdown. I don't know if I've talked about this on this podcast. I once had a meltdown because I couldn't find my sunglasses. That's actually not the reason I had the meltdown. I had the meltdown because I couldn't find my sunglasses. And then I had the thought, I can't control anything. So not finding my sunglasses is not a thing. Like that's not, there's no emotion behind there except for maybe annoyance and frustrations, like, well, this is inconvenient. The meltdown is, of course, I can't control anything. And that's a thought that if if you have it and it starts spinning, that wheel just starts going, like, it would be hard not to have a meltdown from that thought. Like, there's some thoughts we have that are so volatilizing that, like, you have the thought and, well, yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna have a very strong emotional response. So both events and interpretations can get the wheel spinning. Then once the wheel starts spinning, you have your experience in your body. 
Um, so body sensations, the physical way your body changes, your urges to act. And then you have your expression, which is how you communicate this emotion to other people or what they other people would see if they were watching you. So what you said or did, facial expressions, body language. And then the echoes. Echoes are how your emotion influences your attention, mood, thinking, and actions as the day goes on. So everybody has had an experience of a friend or family member who gets upset about something and then there's a black cloud around for the rest of the day. Like there's this kind of lingering anger, resentment, just something that's unspoken. That's an example of an echo. You know, I've, I've had things where I woke up one morning and I'm like, oh, I'm super excited to eat my leftovers for breakfast. And then somebody else ate them. And it kind of throws off my entire day. Like I get upset and then that resentment lingers for the rest of the day. And echoes are protective in intention. Like they are trying to protect you from having that emotion again. So there's a lot of avoidance and a lot of like battening down the hatches. So kind of to summarize, an event happens and gets the wheel starting or an event happens and then our interpretation of that event happens and gets the wheel started. And the wheel is the experience of how it feels in your body, the expression of how it looks to other people and the echoes, the after effects, kind of how it lingers over time. And that wheel can keep spinning because you have an experience in your body. If you experience something and like you experience anxiety, well, now you may have anxious thoughts and the thought can keep the wheel spinning. Like the thought is the interpretation that just keeps adding fuel to the fire. Now I'm mixing all my metaphors here. And the likelihood of the emotion wheel starting to spin is, is impacted by your emotion vulnerability. Think of this. Think of like... The difference between um, pushing a toddler on like a little tricycle versus pushing a car. When you have like you're you're not feeling emotionally vulnerable, it takes a huge amount of something to get your wheels spinning. So you're more like the car. You're super stable, super grounded versus if you have a lot of vulnerability factors running it takes very little for somebody to push you and suddenly it's like, bam, now my, my wheel's running. And there's all sorts of things that will increase your vulnerability, increase the likelihood that your wheel will start spinning out of control. Things like your health, stress, self-esteem, preparation for what's going on that day, doing things each day that give you a sense of joy or satisfaction. Like, if I've been able to complete something, I am oftentimes unfuckwithable. If something is incomplete, like I've been thwarted in being able to complete something, I can get super irritable. And that's that's for me personally because completion is a huge source of joy for me and being thwarted in that will make me more likely to be emotional. So getting back to disgust here... Let me find it again. Do, 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 do. There we are. So prompting events for me, a feeling disgust, 
is observing or hearing somebody act with extreme hypocrisy. So watching my parents say one thing to me and then saying something else to somebody else. There's a disjoint there that is really bothersome to me. And then what ends up happening, like my emotion wheel will start spinning. So I'll overhear that. And then the interpretation that I have is that's extremely hypocritical. That's the thought that I'll have. That I'm having cognitive dissonance. It doesn't match up. And then I have, I feel crazy. Like I can't trust my own reality. I start judging myself. I start judging them. And I, I want to either run really, really fast. So that would be a, that's the biological changes. Like the urge that I have is to go run really fast or get in the car and drive really fast. Like there's this, I have to get out of here. Kind of like all this pressure has built up and I need to have a pressure release valve or something. Again, talking with my therapist, we're trying to figure out, like, I wanted to put in problem solving because the event is I'm hearing my parents, like, say things to other other people that differ from what they've told me. And so I want to do some problem solving there uh, around, like, wearing headphones all the time, at which point my therapist is like, yes, but given that there are times when you actually have to talk to your parents, how then do we basically beef up your your ability to emotionally regulate your disgust. So acting on the level of the experience. And that's where we get into emotional regulation of disgust. And that's tricky for me. So I'm just, God, just lost my spot, actually. You know what? I'm going to take a break because I am so idle-minded right now. I am not thinking clearly, so... I'll come back to this. Well, that was interesting. I had actually forgotten that I recorded this episode, which is why on the last episode I published, I said, this is going to be the last one where I used the shitty microphone. And then I forgot that this episode existed. So in listening back to this, I noticed something was missing. I I was speaking with a lot of vagaries and generalities and hypotheticals rather than being able to identify here is an event that happened. And what I noticed was missing was the observe skill. Like I wasn't observing and I hadn't been observing something. And I think that's part of the reason why that emotion disgust lingered. And it kind of felt like this just pervasive diffuse black cloud. And we've talked about the the emotion wheel before. And in fact, we talked about it just now and what you just heard. And I become conscious of disgust kind of in the middle of the wheel spinning, rather than paying attention to what started it spinning. And when that happens, it's really challenging for me to answer the question of what's wrong? What happened? I don't know. I just suddenly became conscious, like coming out of a blackout right in the middle of the emotion wheel spinning. When that happens, it really is very disorienting. My mom tells a story of driving in a car with some friends when she was like in college or whatever, and she fell asleep at the wheel. And she woke up 
because her friend was like, hey, wake up, really gently because she was driving into oncoming traffic. And the disorientation of suddenly becoming awake while driving down the road at full speed, that's intense. And that's kind of how I feel a lot of the times with my emotions in situations where I'm not practicing the observe skill. I will just basically become aware that I'm having a feeling in the middle of having the feeling. And I can't tell you what started it or how I got here. And that's uncomfortable and scary. And it makes it hard to have conversations <laughs> about how I'm feeling. So I'm like, I don't know how I got here. So typically, I get defensive if somebody asks me how I'm feeling. Like they can tell that I'm upset about something or I'm having a strong emotion. They're like, what are you feeling? I'm like, I don't know. And I get defensive. I want to deflect. I want to blame other people because I think I'm experiencing embarrassment. Like I should know how I feel. So I'm judging myself. And I, instead of just being like, I don't actually know right now how I'm feeling, I get defensive and I get mad at the person for asking me how I'm feeling, which is not effective. And in listening back to what we just listened to, I hear a lot of anger at my parents. And I remember feeling a lot of anger during the therapy session that immediately preceded that recording because my therapist kept asking for specifics and I couldn't think of any. I just had this kind of dark cloud of disgust hanging over me and I was really struggling to come up with an, a specific event that triggered that disgust. And I kept waiting as I was re-listening to this recording. I kept waiting for me to bring up an example. <laughs> I'm like, Joy, you're not actually saying anything. And the reason I wanted to share this recording with you is because it kind of feels authentic to how emotions, at least for me, can feel when I'm not observing. There's just this diffuse misery. And I can't tell you why. I don't know why. I don't know what's going on. I'm aware that I'm pissed off or annoyed or something. I'm disgruntled. And I could probably even tell you who it's aimed at. Like I know that my disgust was aimed at my parents. And I couldn't think of examples as to why. So I wanted to share an example of me really not being skillful and then talk about what skill I want to add into that. Because I really wish I'd used observe <laughs> during that whole uh, exchange and that I had been using observe previous to that. So when I went into my therapy appointment, I could actually be articulate. I could actually describe because observation is a prerequisite to describing. If I don't know, if I'm not observing how I'm feeling, I can't then describe to you how I'm feeling. So this kind of diffuse black cloud of disgust. I think part of that is a function of overhearing things because our house is small, my parents are loud, and our doors are thin. So I overhear things and I'm not all that aware that I'm hearing them. It's kind of like subliminal messaging or studying by sleeping with uh, an audiobook under your pillow. I just find myself sitting in my room reading or listening to music and then feeling angry. 
Like nothing happened or I wasn't aware that anything just happened. But clearly something happened. As we've discussed before, all behavior is caused. All emotions are caused. Emotions don't spring up out of nothing. They come from somewhere. So I wanted to talk a bit about how to observe. And observation is a mindfulness skill. And I haven't really talked all that much about mindfulness. I think I talked a bit about wise mind because I was talking about emotion mind in a previous episode. I want to say episode four about anger, but I'm not sure. Don't take that to the bank. Just to kind of give you a little bit of an overview, we're not going to get super deep on what mindfulness is or all of the skills that are included in mindfulness. Uh, I just want to give a bit of orientation so that uh, you kind of know, <laughs> know where you are. So mindfulness is one of the four major sections of DBT, Dialectic Behavioral Therapy, uh, created by Marsha Linehan, and the link to that there's a PDF, the entire thing's a PDF online you can look at, or you can buy a copy of the book. Both of those are linked on the website and in the description of this podcast, now that I think about it, because I thought things through, go me. Uh, so mindfulness is one of those, one of the four modules. There's mindfulness, distress, tolerance, interpersonal effectiveness, and emotion regulation. And the way DBT skills group is structured is that you go through all four modules in six months and then you do it again. So it's a year commitment, four modules, and then back to back and four modules again. And mindfulness isn't treated like a separate module. It kind of is treated like the ads at the beginning of a movie for each module because mindfulness is necessary for all of those other modules, for all of those other skills. It's really hard to tolerate distress if I'm not mindful. It's really hard to be effective interpersonally if I'm not being mindful. And it's really hard to regulate emotions if I'm not being mindful. So mindfulness is kind of a foundational skill and or rather a collection of skills. And the goals of mindfulness, and this is from Mindfulness Handout 1, are to reduce, reduce suffering and increase happiness, happiness increase control of your mind, and experience reality as it is. Oh, and I really struggled with this. This would have been 2016. And I was dissociating like it was my job. I was dealing with, I wouldn't say the worst PTSD symptoms. They were still ramping up. The worst would, would be yet to come. Uh, but they were getting, it was getting worse. And I was also dealing with chronic pain from my pelvic floor spasm. So I really didn't want to be mindful. I didn't want to be aware of how I was feeling. I didn't want to be aware of my emotions or my body sensations. And I dissociated to avoid that. And then of course, dissociation is a skill. And it's not an effective, I mean, it can be effective. It typically gets in the way of long term goals. I'll put it that way. And like any skill, the more you use it, the better you get at it. So I was becoming very, very good at dissociating and it became kind of my default coping mechanism and got in the way of 
a lot of things because I just wasn't paying attention. I wasn't present. I wasn't aware of other people. I wasn't aware of myself. I was just checked out mentally. So mindfulness felt really threatening. And I didn't want to... I really didn't want to engage in it. And one of the things that my then DBT instructor, Bob Gettle from Maple Leaf DBT, one of the things that he mentioned about mindfulness is that typically if your misery level when you're not mindful is is high but consistent. So I'm dissociated and I'm checked out, but my misery level is like 80 out of 100, just kind of consistently. That's one way to live. And mindfulness typically will have your misery level spike up, but then drop down to a much lower equilibrium. So being mindful, I would have my misery would increase initially. So instead of being at an 80, I'd be up at 100 maxed out and then drop down to like 40 or 30 out of 100 in terms of misery. And I think I was avoiding like I'm like I can I would much rather be at 80 all the time than briefly be at 100. Uh, that was the, the thought I was having then because I didn't have a lot of stamina emotional stamina for actually sitting with really challenging emotions, really strong emotions. And so mindfulness felt really, really scary uh, because I kind of figured that mindfulness would like peg my odometer at 100 in terms of misery. So max out misery. And what my DBT instructor pointed out was it will briefly and then you will drop down to a much lower equilibrium. And that was that was hope-giving, I guess. It hadn't occurred to me that, that that would happen eventually. I was more concerned about avoiding the initial spike in misery and not even considering that in the long term, my misery would actually go down quite a bit. So let's talk about mindfulness. There's two main groups of skills in the mindfulness module. There's the what you do and then how you do it. So on mindfulness handout four, it lists the what, the what you do to be mindful, and that's observe, describe, and participate. And all of these are going to feel incredibly self-evident, and I promise you they're not. So we'll get into them shortly. And as far as the how skills, that is on mindfulness handout five, and the how skills are non-judgmentally, one mindfully, and effectively. So you'll notice all of those are adverbs describing how you do a thing, and then all the what skills, observe, describe, and participate, are verbs. So the how describes the what. So let's talk about observe, because that was the skill that I noticed was missing from uh, the recording you just heard. And a couple things to note, I can only observe the present moment. I can't observe the past. I can't observe the future because the past is no longer happening and the future hasn't happened yet. So I can only observe the present moment. Now, if somebody said, hey, Joy, you observed a car I was driving a week ago. What color is it? I would be able to say it's red, but it's not because I'm observing it right this second. It's because I am having a memory. I'm observing the memory. It was red. And then describing that. So... We can't observe the past, and we can't observe the future. 
And as my first DBT instructor would say, observation is a skill that happens in the nanosecond before we start talking to ourselves about what just happened. I've talked about this before, I think actually maybe on this recording, uh, the recording you just heard, that one or two things will happen that will start an emotion wheel spinning, an event or an interpretation. And for a lot of folks, including myself, the interpretation happens so immediately after the event that it's almost indistinguishable. We relate to the interpretation as the event. So an example that I've given is, you know, I have plans with a friend and they're late, so obviously they don't care about me. Now, them not caring about me isn't what happened, isn't the event. That's a thought. The event is what happened. Our interpretation is our thoughts about it, and they get smooshed together. And it's like a head-on car collision of two cars going 90 miles an hour at each other. And in order to separate those cars, you have to get in there with a pry bar and wedge them apart. And the observe skill is one of the ways we can wedge those things apart. Again, the observe skill happens in the nanosecond before we start talking to ourselves about what just happened. So let's talk about what actually is included in observation. So I'm just going to read all of these and then go back through and talk about them more in detail. So how to observe. Notice your body sensations coming through your eyes, ears, nose, skin, and tongue. Pay attention on purpose to the present moment. Control your attention, but not what you see. Push away nothing, cling to nothing. Practice wordless, that's a hard word, wordless watching. Practice wordless watching. Watch thoughts come into your mind and let them slip right by like clouds in the sky. Notice each feeling rising and falling like waves in the ocean. And finally, observe both inside and outside yourself. So let's start with the first one. Notice your body sensations. So those are things we see, hear, smell, touch, and taste. And I've talked about one of my favorite exercises to get into noticing my body sensations. I call it 54321. I'm sure there's a more appropriate or more accurate name for it, but this is the name that I use to reference it to myself. It's five things that I see, five things that I hear, five things that I feel, and then four of those, and then three of those, two, one. And it's a skill that I use when I'm having a lot of distress or I'm having a panic attack to get myself into what is happening right this second. For example, right now, five things that I see. I see my map hung up on the wall. I see a curtain. I see a puzzle. I see a coat. And I see my foot. <laughs> and five things that I hear. I hear my own voice. I hear my mom lowering the, the blinds out in the living room. I hear a door opening. It's very squeaky. I hear the white noise behind my own voice because I'm my headset's plugged in. And I hear my laptop motor. And then five things I feel. I feel, ah, oh, the sheet protectors. How I love the feeling of sheet protectors. 
uh, all my DBT manual is in sheet protectors. So turning the pages or it's just a sensory delight. I feel my foot on my bedspread. I feel my headphones in my ear. I feel <laughs> my lips touching each other. I feel my tongue touching my teeth. Those are things that are happening right this second. So the next item here is pay attention on purpose to the present moment. What's happening right this second here? And what's happening right this second is I'm sitting on my bed and I'm talking. What's not happening is that I'm not fighting with my parents. I'm not getting broken up with again. I'm not leaving a business that I founded. I'm sitting on my bed talking into a microphone. And that doesn't mean that I, I can't have thoughts about all of those things I just mentioned. I can be sitting here and having the thought. And that thought is a present thing. I'm having the thought oh, that I'm still broken up with. I'm having the thought that my parents really need to go get their hearing checked. That's a thought that I'm having. I'm having the thought that nobody will listen to this and I'm wasting my time. <laughs> so all of these are thoughts that are happening, but none of those things are actually happening right this second. So thoughts are also things I can observe, not with my senses though, but I can pay attention to my thoughts. The next item is control your attention, but not what you see, push away nothing, cling to nothing. I have this tendency that if I have a thought, I need to engage with it. I need to pay attention to it. I need to honor it. I need to treat it like it is factually accurate and has a seal of approval on it. My current DBT instructor, <laughs> I love this. She says that thoughts are kind of like a toddler trying to get your attention. It's like, mom, 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 mom. And you're like, what? And the kid's like, I want a snack. I'm like, okay, well, you just had dinner or dinner's about to happen, you're not going to get a snack. Just because the toddler voices that desire doesn't mean you have to give it to them. And in fact, a lot of cases, it would be unwise or ineffective or problematic to give your toddler everything that they ask for. So thoughts are kind of like that. And my thoughts have specific routes that they like to follow. There's major thoroughfares of thought. And then there's like random shortcuts and side streets that are less frequented, I would say. But I have kind of my pattern in the same way that like if you're driving to work, there's a route you probably take almost automatically. And I have done this multiple times. I have left my house to go visit somebody or go to the store and on autopilot, I will end up at the gym because that's the route I take most frequently. So if I'm not paying attention and I'm listening to a podcast or just daydreaming, I will end up at the gym, whether I intended to get there or not. And I think thoughts are a lot like that. There are thoughts that my brain will just have automatically. It's a path of least resistance. It's like this is a this is a path that's well traveled. We're familiar with this route. Let's just let's go down this route. And going down that route doesn't make those thoughts more accurate than other thoughts. It doesn't make those thoughts more true. It just means that those are the thoughts I am more used to having. And that is all it means. Observing my thoughts as just a thing my brain will do rather than things I have to do something with was kind of a game changer 
And because I would have a thought and I'm like, oh my God, I need to, I need to address that. I need to think about that more. I need to figure that out, whatever the, uh, the thought might have been. And it has taken a lot of practice to not interact with my thoughts that way and to just kind of treat them like, you know, like I'm sitting next to a river and watching leaves float down. It's like, oh, there's a leaf. There's another leaf. Oh, look, two leaves. And just letting them flow by. And the way I had been relating to my thoughts was like, oh my God, there's a leaf. I need to dive in and go get it <laughs> and bring it out and stare at it for 10 hours. And it didn't occur to me that I could have thoughts and just let them go, <laughs> let them pass. Oh, look, a thought. Hi, thought. Oy. And that brings us into the next step here. Practice wordless watching. Watch thoughts come into your mind and let them slip right by like clouds in the sky. Notice each feeling rising and falling like waves in the ocean. <sighs> this is a skill, folks. This is such a skill. There is nothing about this that came naturally to me. I interacted with my thoughts as though they were things I needed to change, things I needed to fix, problems. And if you're like me and you have intrusive thoughts that just show up and you're like, oh, I should drive into oncoming traffic. Having that thought and then being like, oh my God, I need to fix it is exhausting. So I had to learn how to observe the thought, acknowledge it and go, yeah, that's a thought I had. And sometimes I even have the energy to validate it and be like, oh yeah, it makes sense that I would have that thought because that's the route I used to take all the time. And of course on autopilot, that's the thought I would have. And that doesn't make the thought true. It doesn't mean the thought is anything I have to do something with. So just observing. <laughs> and I don't like the word just there uh, because typically just can be a, a way of, I guess, minimizing and in this case, I think it's necessary. Like this is the only thing I'm doing during observe. I'm not doing anything else. I'm not grabbing hold of things or clinging to something or latching onto it and trying to fix. It's just like, oh, that's a thought I'm going to have. And then the final item here under the observe skill is observe both inside and outside yourself. So outside yourself are your five senses, touch, taste, hearing, sight, and smell. I listed, I listed taste twice. I'm like, that's not right. Um, and then the inside of yourself, there's an acronym. <laughs> it's stuff, S-T-U-F with just the one F. So things that you can observe inside yourself are sensations. I've observed having a tightness in my chest or lump in my throat or butterflies in my stomach. So that's the S. I can observe thoughts. There's the T. And we just talked about that. Uh, observing, oh, there's a thought. Now I'm having the thought that I'm being repetitive. Now I'm having the thought that you guys are going to be super bored by this. I'm having the thought that you'll think I think you're an idiot because I keep repeating myself. Those are thoughts I'm having. <laughs> and then the last uh, letter here in stuff is the F, which are our feelings or emotions. So you can observe feeling angry, feeling anxious, feeling disgusted, as is the topic of this episode. 
So those are ways to observe. And if I don't observe first, I can't do (laughs) the next step, which is describe. And that was why that whole section of me talking about disgust two months ago was kind of a shit show, which is a judgment, 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 judgment. I really struggled in actually being able to articulate anything because I wasn't observing. And if I don't observe, I can't describe. And the whole point of a podcast is to describe. (laughs) Like, I'm describing it because you're not here physically in the room with me. So you can't see what's actually going on. And this feels kind of self-evident that if I'm not observing something, I can't describe it. But it hadn't really occurred to me that that skill gap was what was having me be ineffective in talking about disgust. So what I want to do in the future is actually observe when I'm feeling disgust and take note of it and then describe it to you guys so that I can actually go through this whole process in a more effective way and do opposite action and do mindfulness of emotion and all of this other stuff, which I can't do if I'm not observing. So observation is key. And one final note, and again, I will, I will devote an entire episode just to this. Observe is the what. The how is, again, mindfulness handout five, is non-judgmentally. So observe non-judgmentally. Observe one mindfully. So just one thing at a time and observe effectively. So being mindful of goals and focusing on what actually works, et cetera. Because observation that is just steeped in judgment leads to misery. Speaking from personal experience, a lot of these skills kind of depend on each other. Like I was learning the skill of observe and I hadn't learned the non-judgment skill yet. So I was observing things and just miserable because I was like, oh, I feel like shit over here and I'm experiencing pain here and it shouldn't be this way and I shouldn't have a conversation like that and I shouldn't be having a panic attack at the gym and all of this stuff. And it was increasing my misery, not in an effective way, not in that, that initial spike that I mentioned earlier that would then taper off and result in a much lower equilibrium. This was just increasing my my misery full stop. And so it became apparent that I needed to practice non-judgmentally in concert with practicing my what skills, observe, participate, and describe. That's backwards. Observe, describe, and participate. There we go. Oh, and one other thing. I've been observing. Aha! Here is me observing. Okay. I have an example. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, I have noticed the last couple times I've gone to my gym, I will go into the main weightlifting area and start feeling anxiety. And I've been going to this gym for, God, I don't know, six years now. Like, this is my neighborhood gym. And I'm very familiar with the front desk people. And I'm used to you know, seeing the same folks kind of at the same time each day of the week. So to walk into the gym, to walk into the the weightlifting area and feel anxiety is, I don't like it. <laughs> How about that? It's not what I want to be experiencing when I go into 
my happy place, what is typically my happy place. So I was experiencing anxiety and wanting to at least understand it. I was like, okay, anxiety, what what brought you here today? And looking around and realizing there were a lot of men and maybe one woman there. And that's that's not atypical. That's pretty frequent, actually, that I'll go into the weightlifting area and it's mostly men or all men and I'm the only woman or one of a few women. And I think the difference in what has me feel anxious on some days and not on others is if there are groups of men, like pairs or groups of three who are around a a machine or a bench um, working out together. Uh, that will be one of the things that has me feel anxious. And then the other thing is if the men are large, if they're tall, if they're super buff, if they just take up a lot of space, I become very aware of how small and fragile I am when that's the case. I think the reason that the the groups of men adds to my anxiety is because they're talking to each other. If a bunch of individual dudes are just working out, it's very quiet in there. But when there are groups of guys talking, you get, you know, laughter, you get um, encouragement, you get just guys shooting the shit. And there's something about it that increases my anxiety. And I have several times wanted to just turn around and walk back to my car and go home. And Long term, I really want to work out. And also checking the facts. I I know that people can be gross at the gym. I mean, TikTok is full of examples of people posting videos of a, somebody being creepy or getting too much in their personal space, saying weird things, what have you. And I've never, that's not true. I wouldn't say never. I've rarely experienced that at my gym. And there are staff there, there are bystanders there. So I'm pretty objectively safe. Like I don't think anybody's going to try to assault me in the gym. So I was just observing that, oh, look, anxiety is coming up. Oh, it makes sense that anxiety would be coming up because there are a large number of men in here. There are very few women and a lot of the guys are big. And I have emotion come up around that. And I chose not to interact with that anxiety as anything that I needed to fix. It was just, oh, okay, we're feeling anxious. All right. (laughs) Let's go do some bicep curls, shall we? So again, like that toddler, you know, who's pulling on my sleeve, joy, 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 joy. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling anxious. I'm feeling anxious. I'm like, okay, great. I got, I got it. I hear you. And we're going to, we're going to still work out. So anywho, I've been meaning to bring that up on an episode and today was the day, apparently. I wish I had a more profound way to end this and I don't. Uh, If you have any questions, please email them to me or um, DM me on any of the social media. The link is in the bio. And I'd love to hear if there are topics uh, that you want to hear more about like kind of more broadly, or if you have a question specific to your life, I'd love to get some listener questions 
and hear what you guys are thinking. So feel free to drop me a line in whatever manner you choose to do so. And again, I really don't know how to end this, so I'm just going to end it super. This has been Let's Therapize That Shit with your host, me, Joy Gerhard. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, subscribe, and tell your friends about it. I'll see you next time. Intro and outro music is Swan Lake Opus 20 by Tchaikovsky, performed by the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Anatoly Fistulari, and released on LP by Richmond High Fidelity London Records in 1952.